Well, greetings to those of you who are tuned in by telephone as well as those here. We're told that Christ's face shines like the sun in its full glory. Maybe the one, one of the reasons we're out here is we get a dose of that almost daily. And uh, it certainly is bright. But it's a beautiful day today and the sun shining brightly out there. And I think that that, even though we by no means worship the sun, God put that sun up there for some very important reasons. And I do believe that it is a reminder, since God himself drew that analogy of the power and the brightness of the face of our Lord. We dare not even look at that sun because we go blind in a short amount of time. So, you know, sometimes God makes things and Satan perverts them and takes them off their proper uses. But if we use them properly, uh, that's okay. There is a curiosity, in a way, a scripture that I've reflected on all over the years, have certainly read at least once a year, if not more, and I don't know that I ever could really grasp and understand what it was talking about until more recently. But I want to go there today and use it as a stepping stone for some thoughts about the future and what this day means. It's found in John 14. We read it at least once a year because we read it every year at Passover time. There's a statement in here that's made that, that uh, I wondered, how could that be and in what form could it take? How could that happen? It says in chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now that was good advice for those disciples who were to soon become apostles. Not to let your heart be troubled. And there are words that we read every year. Do we take them to heart? It was read to us this morning in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness and for correction. So this verse is for us as well. And we are not to be troubled at heart. We are to look forward with great faith, with great anticipation, not shrinking back in attitude at all, but looking forward. He says he's going to prepare a place for us. And if he does, he will come again. So he preconditions some of the things he's about to say in this chapter, in the following two chapters, with that. But let's go on down to, oh, about verse uh, 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it suffices us. He didn't ask much. <laughs> he said, you've been with us all this time. Uh, we still doubt a little bit. We're still not sure. Why don't you just show us the Father? 
That's a pretty big request. And he did not do it in the way that Philip asked. Christ said to him, or Emmanuel, Have I been so long time with you, and yet you have not known me, Philip? Interesting way of answering that request, isn't it? He that has seen me has seen the Father. We're just alike. We're identical. There is no difference. If you've seen me, you've seen him. You can't even believe me. Then why would you believe him either? You'd just have more of the same. A very clever way that he answered that. He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how say you then, show us the Father? Why would you even ask that? You've been with me for three and a half years. Believe you not. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. You've seen the things that I've done, he said. You've seen those works. You've seen healings. You've seen miracles. You've seen resurrections. You've seen... This Passover, he said, and I'm about to die. You're going to see a resurrection as well. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Believe that, or if that's too big for you to swallow, believe me for the very work's sake. The work that he was doing the work that he was about to commission them to do, believe because of the work that has been and shall be done. Truly, truly, I say to you, he that believes on me or in me, who believes me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. Now that is a mouthful. Here was a man who was having trouble believing, even in the presence of Christ himself, and wanted to see the Father so that he could really believe. So he pointed to himself and said, If you can't believe that, then believe it for the work's sake. Not just the work that had just transpired, but the work that was to come. And that's what he truly had reference to, because that's what he next mentioned and said, if you believe me, believe in me and on me, you will do as great a works as I have done, and even greater. Now Christ had healed the sick of all kinds of maladies, life-threatening ones, people who had been deformed from birth, 
And he had resurrected the dead, as in Lazarus, three days after he died. Now I reflected on this 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. We were in Worldwide Church of God in those years, and we saw a work, we saw a church, we saw the occasional healing, we saw some fairly dramatic healings at times, but we didn't see the things that Christ had done. We didn't see resurrections of the dead. So, as year strung upon year, and decade upon decade, every time I would come across this, I would meditate on it or muse about it and wonder, how could that be? I knew most of the ministry. I did not see them in that role. And I wondered, how could this be? Was this talking about now? Or was it just referring to then? What's the depth of this passage? Let's continue for a moment. Verse 13, And whatever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, by my authority, according to my will, as we've seen in other places, I will do it. Now, as a minister, when I would read these verses and contemplate upon them, it made me feel very inferior. It made me feel pretty impotent in terms of spirituality, incompetent, unholy, unrighteous, ineffective. Now, that was a promise he had made to those apostles, but did it not to extend did it not extend to others in the future if it was written and inspired for our benefit? I think it must have given a lot of ministers an inferiority complex over the decades in Worldwide Church of God to read that and say, I can't do it. It's been mentioned to me, oh, quite a few times over the years, when people would have dreams, and it seems to be a, well, maybe not a real common, but a fairly common occurrence in the church, that someone would dream of the resurrection. And they would dream that people around them were rising into the air, and they couldn't. And they would try to jump, or try to hop, or try to fly in some way, and it wouldn't happen. I don't know why we've had that dream. I think I had it a few times. I remember Al Fortune Sr. Uh, bringing it out in a sermon one time that he had had that dream, and various other ones through the years, uh, just people here and there, have mentioned that they had had that dream. So it's been fairly common, I suppose, within the church. But when you awaken from a dream of that nature, it leaves you feeling pretty powerless, pretty weak, and a little bit scared and unsettled and frustrated that others might 
rise in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and be a part of the kingdom of God and live forever. And you wouldn't. Perhaps it's part of our psyche, our, our nature, our makeup, that it's within us to have a sense of failure about us to one degree or another. Because we all wrestle with our value, our purpose, our reason for being here, our worth to God and our worth to each other, for that matter, and even our worth to ourselves. Because even though we recognize that we're important to God by being human beings and certainly more important for, re- for His reasons, for being called and understanding what we understand, still we feel insecure, we feel unworthy, and a lot of the reason for that is because of our faults and our weaknesses and our sins and the things that we are trying to overcome and having difficulty with. Because it says the righteous are bold as lions, and lions can be pretty bold. Now, if we try to act bold, and it's not on the basis of true spirituality, that is a fake boldness, and it turns out to be being full of ourselves and being self-righteous. But if we truly become righteous the way God wishes us to be righteous, then our boldness is based in true holiness, and it is true boldness and power. Now let's understand that these disciples to whom he was speaking here on that night in the garden were men who were faulted, who had petty jealousies, who were envious of one another, who when they were listening to Christ would even question among themselves, who is the greatest among us? So they had their rivalries. They had the same thing we used to have in worldwide of politics, trying to become deacons and elders and ministers and apostles and whatever. Yeah, there were some who wanted to be apostles too. You and I didn't know about them too much, but they were in the circles in Pasadena trying to leapfrog up to the highest position. And one finally did, falsely. But these were men subject to like passions as you and me, as it is said about Elijah there and James. He spoke, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. He says, if we will pray the prayer of faith, then we will be healed. And that Elijah resurrected someone, yet he was a man of like passions as us. He's just like you and me. He was no different. That's hard to imagine because we put those people in our minds on a higher level than us. And true, they may have had a higher level of spirituality and righteousness based on their entire lives. But James makes it very clear that Elijah was a man of like passions as he was and as those people he was writing to, which was the church of God. And he included himself because he had been one of those disciples who had questioned, Thomas who had doubted, 
Philip, who said, well, if you'll just show me the Father, then I'll believe. To us, that would be a stupid question, wouldn't it? And yet he was wrestling in his own mind and emotions to be what he ought to be and having difficulty with it. And then Christ turns around and tells him, if you will believe, if not for me, for the very work's sake that is involved, please believe, and you will be able to do as great and greater things than I have done. Let's go to Acts 1. This was apparently written by Luke. He mentions the former treaties that he had made to Theophilus, and that would have been the book of Luke, and how he had been taken up into the heavens. And he gave them some direction. He says in verse 5, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Now they were still doubting and arguing. Remember what they did even that very night after he had told them if they believed that they would do greater works than he. And how when a little bit of pressure was put on them, do you even know this Christ? They ran. Peter denied him three times before the rooster crowed in the morning. So they were all chicken-hearted, lily-livered, weak-backed, and had a yellow stripe that long down their back, I suppose, of themselves. They were not men who were mighty and powerful and strong. As human beings, they weren't much. Now there, we should begin to take a little comfort. We should begin to, begin to identify a bit with them. Because we are not spiritual giants ourselves, are we? We are weak and timid and unbelieving and doubtful and shrink back way too often. So we should be able to identify with those fellows. They were having trouble grasping it. Trouble understanding it. Coming to grips with it. Believing it. In one way, it's kind of funny that here comes a man doubting Philip, and Christ says, you've seen me, so you've seen the Father. And then he throws him another huge one. Here's a man who is already doubting, already confused and having difficulty, and he lays an even bigger one on him in a way. By saying, you're going to do greater things than I have done. Philip had witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus. Say what? <laughs> I was already doubting. Now you're going to throw something even heavier and bigger on me? So before he ascended into the heavens, they asked him, Will you again restore the kingdom to Israel at this time, verse 6 of Acts 1. 
He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Of course, we've all wanted to speculate on the times and the seasons ever since, and still do. And as we draw near, perhaps not unrighteously so, I think it's okay to read the scriptures and try to understand. That's not what we should make our religion of, however. That should be how we conduct our lives and live God's way of life. But you shall receive power, strength, might, power, raw, unbridled, strong power. After the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. You men here, he said, shortly, are going to receive the power of the Spirit of God. And you will be witnesses of God to the entire world. And I suspect that among those twelve men, they traveled to the uttermost parts of the earth and did exactly what he said would be done. Now we have knowledge of some of their travels. I doubt if we have knowledge of all their travels, because I suspect that they did exactly what they had been told here. I suspect that they also began near here, where we stand today, or sit, and went from here to the Mediterranean, to Europe, to Asia, to Africa, to South America, and all over the earth where men were, because that's what he said. And when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. And behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, apparently angels, which also said, You men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Christ, or Emmanuel, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven." Now, had you and I been standing there, I suppose, suppose we'd have been standing looking straight up with our mouths wide open as well as he rose off the ground and went up into the clouds. Wouldn't we? Would have been an amazing thing. And the angel says, why are you looking up? He's coming back down. We don't always look at things the way angels and God does, do we? What in essence he was telling them is you have work to do here while he's gone and then he's coming back. So quit looking up there and get to work doing what you need to be doing. Didn't he tell you what you had to do? And yet, at the same time, they were told to wait. They were to tarry there for 50 days until Pentecost and actually not do anything. Now, perhaps they had preparation to do. I'm sure they had a lot of talking to do. Don't you suppose that? 
the greatest thing that had ever been on earth had just ascended into the heavens, had been with them three and a half years teaching them daily, had eaten, slept, traveled, walked with them that whole time, had done incredible miracles, had been killed, had been resurrected, taught them 40 days, told them to wait 50 days, powerless, until the Holy Spirit was sent. And then he had simply disappeared into the clouds. I think they would have had a lot to talk about. Was this really God? We're left alone. Now what do we do? What do we say? How do we go about this? Where do we get the power? What means, what method do we have to accomplish what he's told us to do. Remember in Matthew 28, he had told them to go to all nations, baptizing them. So that's added to what he had told them there in John 14. And what he had told them just before he left. So I imagine they were talking about a plan. How do we go about it? Who goes where? Was this really real, or did we dream a dream? I'm sure there were all kinds of doubts that surfaced. All kinds of questions came up. Remember, they had still not been imbued with the Spirit of God. So they still had their carnal minds and their carnal reasoning and their selves to deal with. And it must not have been an easy time. Where was that he told them to wait? Uh, it's right in here somewhere. My eye doesn't catch it. Anyway, uh, says verse 14, These all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Emmanuel, and with his brethren. So they stayed together, and I imagine they did cling to one another because this was the one significant event that had happened in the history of mankind. And they were bound together in Christ, and yet they still had their doubts and fears and wonders. So they stayed together to give each other strength and help, and they prayed. They continued together in prayer and supplication. Uh, and in, the, in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120 now, Christ had been here for three and a half, well, actually, thirty-three and a half years, but he had been preaching for three and a half. And of all the preaching that he had done, and all the multitudes who came to see healings and to be healed, and to hear this teacher, the multitudes who had come, there were about 120 believers after all that. Isn't that incredible? Only 120 people. Now, Peter had been told by Christ, you're the little rock, I'm the big rock, and I'll build my church upon me, but I'm putting you in charge. So Peter must have screwed up his courage and found some backbone and stood up in front of them and said, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit uh, spoke 
by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And they went about the business then of selecting a new disciple to become apostle. They drew it down and talking among themselves to two who seemed to be possible candidates. And then they asked God's guidance and direction in it and cast lots and it came down upon Matthias. So they sat there basically doing nothing because there was a countdown from Passover, the time of the death of Christ, to Pentecost. And that had been laid out in Leviticus 23, that they were to count 50, count seven Sabbaths from the Sabbath during the Days of Unleavened Bread, and then the 50th day, which would have to be a Sunday, would be Pentecost. So there was a finite amount of time involved. In other words, there was a plan. Now he had told them in John 14 through 16 that he would send to them a comforter, a strengthener, some power to help them. But there was a plan involved. And that timeline had been laid out long beforehand. Clear back in Leviticus. Count 50. So he told them, tarry here until Pentecost. Now I do believe there are parallels between that count 50 and the Jubilee year. The freedom, the power that the Holy Spirit brings, which is enacted in Pentecost. And the word itself means count 50. And there being a finite amount of time that they had to wait, I do believe that the Jubilee years have stretched out from the time that God instituted them, and that most probably the end-time events that are coming upon us very quickly now will culminate in the Jubilee year at count 50. Now, wouldn't you think that Christ would want his work continued and continued right away after he left? Yes, but there was a waiting period. There was a time of sitting back, thinking, preparing, I suppose, but really not doing much until the time arrived and until God provided the means to do what needed to be done. Now we can get very impatient waiting. Habakkuk got impatient waiting. Took God to task over it, and then got scared and backed off and says, I think I'll just go sit on my watch until these things happen. But I know I can trust in God and He'll make my deers, my legs like deer legs. The end of the book of Habakkuk. And we too can get impatient. We too can begin to jump the gun and begin to wonder what needs to be done. There is a time maybe we could even begin to take things in our own hands and do things that God did not yet intend to be done. And I think that there are examples of that in the church today. Anyway, he told them, you wait until the time is right and until I give you the power to do what needs to be done. 
And there's a lesson there. Now let's go to chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, not a day ahead, not two days ahead, not three days ahead, not even that evening at sundown, but when it was fully come, in the morning, when they were having a meeting, they were all gathered together in one accord, in one place. God was not going to jump ahead of his own schedule. Human beings might have thought, all right, Pentecost is here, ready, set, go, this evening. No, it wasn't time even yet. God wanted something done, but he wanted it to be done in broad daylight. He wanted it to be done in the view of many people. He wanted a splash, if you will, a big deal. So they sat quietly for 50 days, doing almost nothing. And then the day arrived. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, violent wind. I think the indication is with thunder, power, scary wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. There appeared to them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. What an amazing thing. What a scary thing. Anybody going to sleep in church? Not that day. No way. When you see flames of fire in the air about you, And it sat upon each of them. It wasn't some fire up there at the end of the building. It wasn't fire in the back of the building. What do people do when they see fire in a building? They all head for the exit. See our new exit sign? Panic. This fire sat on each one. Did it come down like cloven tongues? And settle on each head. And you were looking at everybody's head and they had fire on their head. And you tried to look straight up to see if you had one on your head. Been quite scary. When you have that kind of noise, it scares you anyway. I've seen us get just a little bit frightened in this very building when the thunder would come very close. Thunder's scary. Lightning can scare you. I've seen dogs run under beds because of thunder. I've seen people run for corners when thunder and lightning and tornadoes were on their way. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with different tongues, different languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now, they were not devout in their worship of God Almighty. (coughs) They were devout in the worship of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the devil. But they were devout Jews. And they were there for a holy day, for Pentecost. Now, those who were disciples of Christ himself 
were only 120. So these devout men were not followers of God Almighty at all. They were devout Jews, which is the opposite of being devout followers of God, as Christ very clearly pointed out several times. Now when this was spread abroad, people began to yell and scream and shout. They began to run through the streets and tell people, there's something happening down there and this is a big deal and I've never seen anything like it in my life. You better come. And then they yelled and others yelled and pretty soon the whole city came to see what was going on. Because it may have been a still clear day in Jerusalem. And suddenly in this one place, Tornadic winds, powerful peals of thunder, and fire, lightning on the heads of the people there. And they began to speak in languages that they didn't even know. Must have been quite exciting, terrifying. So when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were utterly confused. Confounded. What in the world? They had never seen anything like this. Because that every man heard them speak in his own language, and they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? I know a Galilean when I see one. Those are all those guys are all from Galilee. They don't teach them that in school. How could they be speaking these languages? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? And among them there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites, the dwellers in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia in Egypt, and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretes, Arabians people of many, many different languages, and they were all hearing these uneducated Galileans speak in their languages. Well, there were only 12 of them, and there were probably dozens and dozens of languages among these people who were here. Because they'd come from all over to keep Pentecost, since they were devout Jews. From all nations, everywhere. They were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What does this mean? Others mocking said, Ah, they're just drunk. How do you speak all these languages when you're drunk? When you're drunk, you can barely speak your own language. Peter stood up with the eleven, lifted up his voice, yelled, said to them, You men of Judea, and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known to you, and hearken to my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. It was only nine o'clock in the morning. Someone asked me yesterday why we don't have our service at noon on holy days, and then maybe an afternoon service at four or five, the idea was we could sleep in. I wasn't clever enough to come up with this answer, but here they were in church, 
before nine o'clock, because when all this happened, it was still only the third hour of the day and all the crowd was there. So henceforth and forevermore, we're going to start meeting at eight o'clock on holy day mornings. I jest. I'd tell you who asked me that, but I won't. Her initials were D.L. <laughs> you know, I can say that because I know you're not bright enough to figure out who that might be. So I'm safe. Anyway, so these aren't drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. I am sure that Peter himself was trying to get a handle on this, trying to grasp what was going on. He'd never seen anything like this. But Scripture came to mind because he had read the Scriptures. And he thought of Joel too. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass, and he quoted it, in the last days, says God. And of course, when Christ had left, he hadn't told them when he was coming back. And the angel, it says, he's going to come back just the way he went up. So they were anticipating it would be quite soon. And through Paul's earlier writings and some of the others, it becomes clear that they thought Christ would return in their lifetime. They didn't know it was going to be about 2,000 years. And they weren't in the last days. And when, Joel, I mean, when Peter saw this, he thought he was in the last days. I mean, wouldn't you have thought that? If you'd seen a tremendous display like this? Sure you would have. I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. doesn't mention speaking in tongues. That's what was happening, but reminded him of this passage. And on my servants, and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Now to him, hearing thunder, lightning, seeing the cloven tongues of fire come down on 120 people, that to him was signs and wonders in the heavens. How else could he have interpreted it? The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Eternal shall be saved. You men of Israel, <coughs> hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. These people had been witnesses to many of the miracles of the one we now call Emmanuel, God with us. And we say that in anticipation and prayer. They'd seen what he had done. They were hardened by it. They didn't believe it. They dismissed it and went on about their religion in the same way that they always had. Christ did not change their lives one whit by the things he did while he was on this earth. 
They'd seen countless miracles. Some of them were probably there when water was turned to wine at the first miracle he did. They'd heard about, maybe even witnessed, the resurrection of Lazarus. He did it right in front of them. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. That's how much they believed him. That's how much they knew he was God on earth. Whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that you should be held of it. For David speaks concerning him. I foresaw the eternal always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. David knew he was going to die, but he knew the God of the Old Testament, Christ himself. He had a relationship with him, talked to him on a regular basis. And he knew that even though he was to die, he would be resurrected. Because you will not leave my soul in hell, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. Or not eternal corruption, he knew his body would rot, but it would be resurrected in hell. You have made known to me the ways of life. You shall make me full of joy with your countenance. And Peter continues, Men and brethren, let me freely speak to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day. One of the greatest men in the history of these Jews was dead and buried. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in the grave, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this, that which they were witnesses, witnessing, which you now see and hear. You didn't believe it before, you killed him. Now look at what we have. Incredible. When God wants to make his presence known, his might, his power, his strength, he is quite capable of doing it in ways that amaze people. For David has not ascended into the heavens, but he says himself, The Eternal said to my Lord, Sit you on my right hand, until I make your foes your footstool. He knew he would be resurrected and sit at the right hand of Christ over all Israel. He had been told that. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Emmanuel, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. If David was going to sit on his right hand, he had to have been resurrected. And it had occurred. And now they were seeing the power come down from heaven to men on earth. Then Peter said to them, well, they asked them, what do we do? What do we do? He said, repent, be baptized. You receive the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added to them about 3,000 souls. Now all the time Christ had preached, there were only 120 followers. Here in one day, 3,000 people repented and were baptized. You talk about some tired disciples. You know, you dunk 3,000 people and lay hands on them. That's a lot of work. One day. Now, have they done works commensurate to what Christ himself had done? Already. First day, 3,000 baptized. Christ had preached for three and a half years. There were only 120 true followers. They didn't even have the Holy Spirit yet. They had not only done as great a works on the first day the Spirit of God came, but had done greater works already, at least in that category. We can go on and add to that. Go to chapter 4, verse 4. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. So on the next day, apparently... 5,000 men, not counting women, repented and were baptized. Well, there's already 8,000 in just a couple of days. 4, verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. You talk about a transformation of heart and mind. You know those people back then were just as grasping and greedy, if that's possible, as people are today. Just as selfish, very material-minded. People back then stole, cheated, had Ponzi schemes, took money any way they could get it. And yet, those thousands of people had their mind so changed in just a day or two or three, to the point they were willing to throw everything in a pot and own everything in common. I dare say that would be a very difficult thing for you and me to do this very day. I think we should perhaps test that. Right after sundown tonight, I would like all of us to gather here in front of the building and bring everything you own and all the money you have uh, except credit cards that have debt on them. And let's just divvy it all up evenly. Okay? I didn't think so. Now, there might come a time, if things like this happened, that we would be willing to do that. And indeed, we may be called upon to do that, because God does things in patterns that are repeated. I won't go on and spend time on chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira and those who did not have their attitudes completely transformed and decided, well, we'll give some, but we'll hold some back just in case of a rainy day. We might need this, honey. And they died. By the Spirit of God, they crossed 
the purpose of the apostles who had been appointed and had received the power of God, and God struck them dead in their tracks. Those were very dramatic days. Chapter 5, verse 14. And believers were the more added to the eternal multitudes, both of men and women. So this is a thing that continued for a period of time, maybe weeks, maybe months, I don't know how long. But there was an incredible turning of attitudes and repentance and acceptance of Christ. After his preaching, after his death, after his resurrection, when all these people put him out of their minds, is okay, we got him killed, that's the end of that. Let's move on with our Judaism. And then, boy, it came back upon them in full force. But you see, then God opened the minds. He had not done that in the days of Christ. But he opened these people's minds to what was going on. And the preaching of these men served to convert more people than Christ himself by far had done. What about healings? Did they do as great and greater things than Christ himself? Let's look at just few examples here very quickly. Um, let's see. Chapter 14 of Acts. Verse 8. Acts 14, 8. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. We've seen babies born in our day and age, thalidomide babies without feet. We've seen people who are crippled and couldn't walk. There were such then. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed. Paul was speaking and was watching this young man who had never, ever gotten up on his feet and walked. His entire life. And he perceived, by the look on this fellow's face, that he was grasping and understanding what Paul was saying. He wasn't just sort of sitting there, trying to prop his eyelids open. But he was into it. He was listening carefully, steadfastly. And Paul could just tell, by looking at the audience, there's a fellow that's getting what I'm saying. And he said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet! And he leaped, jumped up, and walked. Can you imagine that? And when the people saw what Paul had done... They lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. These were unconverted people listening to a preacher of the gospel. 
And when he yelled at that man and said, Get up and walk! And he leaped up and walked, they said, That must be God. That's something Christ might have done, isn't it? And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. They immediately said that must be Jupiter and Mercury. Then the priest of Jupiter, of course, he was the priest of Jupiter, so he said this must be Jupiter himself come down. which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles Barnabas and Saul heard of, of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you these things? Why also are men of like passions with you and priests to you that you should turn from these vanities to the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein? Why can't you see that this is from God, not from Mercury, and not from Venus or Saturn or the devil? What an incredible thing. All right, let's see chapter 4, verse 30, or further, 29. And now... Eternal, behold their threatenings, and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Now, they had run into opposition, Peter and John and the disciples. Some were converted, but the leaders did not want their power taken away and their religion destroyed. So they became enemies of these apostles of God. But notice verse 30. By stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of your holy servant, Emmanuel. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. And that's when they divided things up. Verse 33, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord, and great grace was upon them. Were they doing as great a works as Christ? Let's go to Acts 9. Uh, here, let's see, I'll pick it up in 32. It came to pass, as Peter passed throughout all quarters, he came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydia. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. On his deathbed, been in bed eight long years. Probably bed sores and all. It's very debilitating to lay in bed month after month, year after year. It's an almost impossible existence. But this man had been bedfast eight long years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ makes you whole. Arise 
and make your bed. And he arose immediately. And all that dwell at Lydia and Saron saw him and turned to the Eternal. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did, a true servant. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And for as much as Lydia was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent to him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. They were overwrought, they were upset, they were frustrated, they were scared. Here one of the greatest servants among them had died. Then Peter rose and went with them. When he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and the garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all away, put them out, and kneeled down and prayed. And turning him to the body said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the eternal. He had healed, and he had resurrected the dead. He had done as great a works as Christ himself. What an incredible thing. That a man who had denied Christ three times just a few weeks before was able to raise the dead. Let's go to Acts 20. Verse 6. <clears throat> and we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came to them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. And upon the first of the week, when the disciples came together to eat, Paul preached to them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. You think we speak long sometimes. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the Apostle Paul was an example that we should follow. So maybe I'd better talk to midnight. Maybe on a specific occasion when you're about to leave, and had not been able to impart all the things you needed to say, there might be a time for that. There certainly was then. And there have been times in Africa and places like that when I knew I would not be back for a long time, that we sat and talked for many, many, many hours. Different questions and answers about things. So, in a sense, the same type of thing that Paul was doing. Anyway, he continued his speech till midnight, and there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. So, bright lights shining, I suppose. They didn't have electric lights like we do, but many lights to light it up because it was midnight and they needed the light. Maybe this young fellow wasn't used to light shining in his eyes. I don't know. There sat in a window a certain man named Eutychus, being, being fallen into a deep sleep. Here's a man, if he's going to sleep in church, knew how to go about it right. 
deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. Fell, maybe broke his neck, I don't know. Killed him anyway. That's sufficient, isn't it? Paul went down and fell on him and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again, and had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till break of day. He didn't just preach till midnight. He spoke till dawn, and then departed. And they brought the young man alive, and were not a little comforted. They were very comforted, I would say. So Paul raised the dead. Now, God raised the dead, but he used Paul as a human emissary to accomplish that purpose. So he had used Peter, and he had used Paul, not only to heal the sick, but actually bring people back to life who were stone-cold, graveyard dead. We've seen healings. We've seen resurrections. I forgot to mention one I wanted to, and that was about Peter's shadow. And people would try to get people who were sick close enough so that when Peter walked by, if his shadow touched them, they were instantly healed. You talk about the power of God. What signs, what wonders those men did. Did Christ's words ring hollowly in their ears? Did they fully believe it when he told them what he said? Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall do greater wonders and works than I have done. And anything you shall ask in the name of the Father, I, he will do it. Now, I have known many ministers over the years who have anointed a lot of people. And sometimes people were healed. I've seen people here anointed, a lot of them, and not be healed yet. I said yet, didn't I? And yet I've seen some healed here as well. But not like this. Not like this. And you know, sometimes it's very frustrating. When you read those scriptures, to pray the prayer of faith, and the people will be healed. And sometimes you pray, and you do believe it's in faith. Maybe it's not in total faith. And sometimes they're not. Sometimes it doesn't happen. More frequently than not, it doesn't happen. Now, it didn't always occur that way in these days either, what we've been reading about today. Paul left one sick and expected him to die. But he had anointed. And he didn't expect God to heal for some reason. 
He had himself entreated God three times about his physical ailments. And God had said, no, no, Paul, no. Oh. He had a reason for Paul still being ill. For him still having a debility that made him look awful. Hard to look at. God has his reasons sometimes. Now, Paul had faith to heal these people, to raise the dead. That was not a question. But God had a reason for Paul having an affliction. He had a reason that that man was lying there and Paul expected him to die. We don't understand always God's reasoning. So, these incredible miracles that occurred after Pentecost went on for a time, and then they lessened. There were not people being healed nearly as often, and not just by the apostle's shadow passing over people. God had a specific reason in having that kind of miracles occur for a certain period of time for the work's sake. Believe it for the work's sake. Okay? Let's fast forward a couple thousand years to today as we sit here, stand here in this room and listen over the telephone in your pajamas out there. No. I'm sure you got up and dressed and prayed before you dialed in. I... 2,000 years later, cogitated on these things occasionally over the years and wondered, how can this be? When will this happen? What form would it take? Why don't we see that in the church today? Why did we see more miracles in the 50s and 60s and then they kind of died out? There weren't nearly as many. Remember that phrase, for the work's sake? There was a growth period that began in Worldwide Church of God in the early 50s, continued through the 60s, when the church was growing by leaps and bounds. And there were far more healings then than there are now. It was for the work's sake. It was because God was building something and He wanted certain numbers there. Many were to be called. And he wanted a faithful, believing core of people to solidify, to strengthen the church. Now, Herbert Armstrong had begun little, had uh, tent meetings, revivals, they called them. And people would believe the things he said, and then he would go back to Eugene. And in that little town, wherever it was in Oregon... It would last a little while and then people would drift away and it would fall apart and die. And that had frustrated him. And God put it in his mind to go to a city of merchants, as Ezekiel 17 points out. 16, 17 I guess it is. Yeah, 17. Down in Los Angeles. And build a college. And train ministers. 
So he needed a core of strong men who understood his teachings to go out and pastor churches. But many of those people, before there was a ministry trained, were kind of on their own and had to go 500 to 1,000 miles or more to even keep the feast. Some of them 2,500 miles. There was not much support system for them. God himself supported them, gave them strength and healed them. There was no minister to come and anoint them. We had to write or call Pasadena and ask for a cloth. And so very often, as soon as the call was made or the letter was mailed, healings occurred. I saw it in my family. I saw it in other families. It happened. It was there. But not in this power. But for the work's sake, it was done. Now let's go back to Revelation 3 for a moment. And there is a part of this message to Philadelphia that we did not really emphasize. There are other parts that have been emphasized a lot more. But I think it ties in with what we're talking about here today. Am I nearly done? Is, did we start at 2.30? I told somebody this would be short today. Is it 4.30? This is a different schedule. Yeah, I, I'm almost done on it. Okay. Uh, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? And we did always feel that that church was the Philadelphia church, Okay. These things says he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts. Now today one of the ministers of the former church of God claims he has the key of David. Is that what this says? No. It says Christ has the key of David. It doesn't say he gave it to a man. Hmm, strange. He that opens and shuts and no man opens. That's Christ, not a preacher. Anyway, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. Now, Mr. Armstrong quoted that fairly frequently, that a door had been opened and he had marched through it and he was preaching the gospel ultimately around the world or at least in fairly great depth to some parts of the world. So we did have a door. And we emphasized that a lot. We didn't emphasize the next phrase much. For you have a little strength and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Now in Acts 2, great strength, great power had been given. But in the Philadelphia era, at the end time, only a little strength was given. Now how do you put that together with what Christ told the disciples? Whatever you ask in my name, the Father will do it. You will do greater is greater works and even greater works than I have done. We've seen biblical testimony that he did it through those men at that time. But shouldn't that also ring true for today? Because all scripture is given to us. Should it not be done again? then how come it has not been? Because we've only had a little strength. And now even Philadelphia itself has dissolved, been scattered, and now we have Laodicea as the primary attitude throughout the church today. And if 
Philadelphia only had a little strength, how much do you think Laodicea is going to have? Huh? Not much. We don't see much, do we? All right, let's all be discouraged and go home. Now, I'm going to preach on just a little bit, even if it is out of time. Because I want us to see another picture. Let's go to Joel 2. Well, I try to hurry and then I can't find Joel. There it is. Now, we read this not too long ago, just before Passover, and it talks here about how God is going to bless uh, in the first month with the former and the latter rain up in verse 23 and so on. And then if we go on down to verse 28, it shall come to pass afterward. So now, during the time of the month of Passover, he's going to give, in some year, the former and latter rain and blessing in a way that we have never known. And I believe that to be an end-time prophecy because that's what Joel is. It's all about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was not coming and was not there when Peter likened Acts 2 to Joel 2. just wasn't there, was it? But he was seeing some incredible miracles that reminded him of Joel 2. All right, it shall come to pass afterward, verse 28. Now, I would assume to mean... Or that to mean at Pentecost. Now that's exactly the meaning Peter put to it. And I do believe that that was a fulfillment of Joel 2, 28, 29, 30. But it was a minor fulfillment compared to what is about to come. A minor fulfillment by comparison. What you have right in front of you, not far away, is going to far eclipse what we have read about Peter and John and Paul. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, not just twelve disciples. And I don't think he's talking about heathens. He's talking about the people of God. And he goes on to explain by what he, mean, what he means by all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids. In those days will I pour out my Spirit. Young and old. Ordained and unordained. Men and women. Both. All flesh. Converted, godly flesh. It would have to be. But all kinds of people. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Before, not at, but before. The great and the terrible day of the eternal come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the eternal shall be delivered. Whoever calls 
on the name of the Eternal shall be delivered. Delivered from what? Delivered from sickness, from lameness, from crippling diseases, from death-threatening diseases, from plagues, from martyrdom, from tribulation. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Eternal has said, and in the remnant whom the Eternal shall call. The 10% remnant is whom this is going to happen through. Not three, four, or twelve men, but through all the remnant that God calls together at the end time just before the day of the Lord. That's talking about you, whoever you are. Not just a few. No, I'm not going to go there for sake of time, but go back and read Zechariah 3, which says that Joshua will be raised up and that the men who sit in front of him will do signs and wonders. And God will bring the eyes of all seven of the spirits of the churches to the rock that's placed before him. And that all will live in their own vine and fig tree and be able to support themselves without any outside assistance. Totally self-sufficient through the power and the mercy of God. What an incredible thing. Go to chapter 4 where it talks about Zerubbabel. And it says, Before him shall all hills and mountains be made flat. He'll flatten the peoples and the governments of the earth. They can't stand before the men of God. Let's turn to Revelation 11. Well, before we go there, remember Matthew 24 and 24? It says that Satan will do such great signs and wonders that it will deceive everyone but the very elect. That would be that same remnant of Joel 2. Gordon said this morning he thought they were the very elect, that remnant. I believe he's right. They're the only ones that will not be deceived, that remnant. Satan is going to be so powerful. Now here's the ironic part of this. God is going to pour out his spirit on his remnant people, his 10% of his church. And at the same time, the, Satan, the devil, is going to do such incredible <coughs> signs and wonders that the whole world will be deceived, except that 10% remnant. Now, Satan is going to pull out all stops to try to outdo the power and the wonders of God. Now, he is a very powerful being. Prince of the power of the air is. And he can appear as an angel of light. And he can do great signs and wonders. Let's go to Revelation 13, verse 10. There's a couple more, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 11, if you want to jot it down. I'll not go there, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 11. But here in Revelation 13, 
Verse 10, he that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. We don't take up arms and go fight. We will wait patiently on God. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him, and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he does great wonders, so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now in Acts 2, cloven tongues of fire came down on about 120 people. Satan is going to trump that by far. He's going to bring fire down from heaven around the world in the sight of all men. And it is going to be such an incredible thing that they will stand in absolute shock and awe. Desert storm was not shock and awe. This is shock and awe. And deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live, and had power to make it and give it life. <coughs> Satan is going to have an incredible display of power at the end. He's going to try to counter everything that God does. And yet God is going to give to His people all flesh, small and large, men and women, children, old men, the power of the Spirit of God. The same kind of power that Peter saw and believed was a fulfillment of Joel 2. And it was only a small microcosm of what we are about to see, even as Satan's power is far greater than what was seen in Acts 2. So much so it deceives the whole wide world, with the exception of about seven to 12,000 people in my estimation. Let's turn to one more. Chapter 11 of Revelation. These two men are told to measure the temple of the and the altar, and those that worship therein, but to leave out the court of the Gentiles. When they begin the work of God, the end-time work of preaching the gospel around the world as a witness, they don't start out by doing that first. Zechariah 4 shows very clearly they feed the church first. Here it says, measure the church and leave out the court of the Gentiles. Just as Christ told those disciples, tarry in Jerusalem until power comes. They are told to hold back, don't go preach to the world, preach to the church. And yet we have many today who don't understand this at all, and they're out there trying to preach to the world. And if God told the two witnesses not to do it, why should these other people think they ought to? For crying out loud. There is a time element 
that is correct and one that is not. There is an order and a timeline which God has in mind, just as it was then. They were to wait 50 days. There is a certain work to be done and a bigger work to be done later. And God doesn't want us jumping the gun. And if He tells these people not to even go to the world, but to go to the church, who do we think we are if we think we ought to go to the world now? It isn't time. The work with the church hasn't even been done yet. Not in the way that it has to be, and the remnant come together. Anyway, verse 3, I will give power, strength, power to my two witnesses. And they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred threescore days clothed in sackcloth. That power will come the day the twelve hundred and sixty day tribulation begins, and it will not come first. They will preach the gospel around the world as a witness, and then the end will come. It will come three and one half days specifically and precisely after they are killed in the streets of Jerusalem. And it will not start one day before that. Not one day. It is a specific job to be done at a specific time, and the power will not be given to do it until that day arrives. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. That refers back to Zechariah 4.14. It's the only other place in the Bible that's mentioned. And it's talking about Joshua and Zerubbabel in Zechariah 3 and 4. There is no other explanation. This is it. He will give them power on the day that it is time for it. Just as he waited until the precise day of Pentecost before. And he will do it on the day of Pentecost again, because that's the way he works. In the first month will come the former and latter rains. Fifty days later, count fifty, the Spirit and power of God will be poured out on man and woman, young and old. And they will do signs and wonders and miracles. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. That goes way beyond Ananias and Sapphira. That goes way beyond anything that Peter, James, and John did. It goes way beyond anything Christ Himself did. Does it not? These works and greater will you do. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. They have the power of Elijah, that it not rain on the earth. Did Christ do that? Did James, Peter, and John do that? No. And have power over waters to turn them to blood, to do the very things God Almighty Himself did in Egypt. 
But Christ did not repeat while He was here on this earth. Now, He's the one that gave the power to do it as the God of the Old Testament. But He did it through Moses and Aaron. And to smite the earth with all plagues, all the plagues of Egypt and any others they can think of, as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that sins out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. It's going to happen just that way. It's going to happen right on time. God has a plan. When I cogitated about these things, when I would read John 14, I didn't understand. I felt inferior. And indeed, I was inferior just as the rest of the ministry was. We had not been given the kind of power that James, Peter, and John were given. We only had a little strength. We could heal a few sick folk. God did a few miracles. God still does a few miracles. More in Philadelphia, who had a little strength, than in Laodicea, who has almost none. But it is not the end of the story. We've just reviewed the end of the story. Satan is going to pull out all stops to show that he is God and will impress everyone on earth but you and those who come here with you. And when the day is right, he is going to pour on you such power and strength and spirit and signs and wonders that will make you gasp. Far greater than what he did in Acts 2 on Pentecost. And then he is going to give for the work's sake even greater power to two, not to do signs and wonders in a specific, specific locale, but around the world. This day is a day of power. This day is a day of strength. Now, it didn't happen today, and I didn't expect it to, because it isn't the time yet. The Jubilee cycle is not finished yet. The time of the renewing and the gathering is not quite here yet. But it's very, very close. And the things that we're talking about are not another generation away. You, sitting here, and others like you, are the ones specifically that these scriptures are talking about. Have a great day.